When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. This is Women to Watch. To rise above all of the noise and fulfill every last one of your dreams. Women to Watch, sharing the real stories of the most accomplished women in the world. It is for those frightened children who want peace. It is for those voiceless children who want change. Be inspired by women from across the globe who are encouraging more women to pursue their dreams. True philanthropy comes from living from the heart of yourself and giving what you have been given. Now, Women to Watch. Here's your host, Sue Rocco. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for joining me for another week of Women to Watch here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Uh, I'm so happy to be back in the studio after a wonderful holiday break, and I want to wish everyone a happy new year. This evening, I will be joined by Annie McKee. And Annie is a senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. She is an author of several books, and she is also a global speaker. And she'll be joining me in just a moment. Um, As we go into our breaks, be sure, as always, you stay with us to hear from our watch team of on-air contributors who will bring you our health watch, leadership watch, finance watch, Tech Watch, Diversity, and Education. And uh, starting in January, as I mentioned before, our brand new Wellness Watch uh, by CEO of Nutrisystem, Dawn Zier, will begin. So I'm real excited uh, for that new series as well. And uh, our listening audience continues to grow, and, and I love to hear from you. So please feel free to reach out to me at any time at womentowatch.net. That's women, the number two, watch.net, N-E-T. And as always, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Women to Watch. So now I would love to welcome to the show Annie McKee. Annie, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Sue. It's a delight. Thanks very much. Well, I want to mention right off the bat that, you know, I came to know you uh, by attending a wonderful event local to Philadelphia uh, through the Montgomery County Foundation. And I listened to you speak there that afternoon, and I was really impressed by a number of things. But the thing that really struck me about you and, and what you were saying was your authenticity in, in your delivery And uh, I really appreciated that and what you were sharing with the women in that room. Thank you, Sue. That actually means a lot to me. Um, You know, when I talk about things like leadership and women's leadership and how to be happy at work and in our lives, this is real for so many of us. And we've got to make it real if we want to convey some pretty complex ideas sometimes. So it really means a lot to me that you said it sounded authentic. I certainly was speaking from my heart and from my own experience about what we can do to make our lives and our work experience better. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you came to do this work. And um, I'm always so interested in in women who I talk to, their beginnings, you know, their, their upbringing and their family and really what kind of connects 
uh, that young girl with her aspirations and challenges to the leader um, that that she is today. And so apparently you were born in England, uh, but you moved to Ithaca, New York, and then went on to go to school in Hawaii. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I know you've been, you know, um, to a lot of places. You do quite a bit of traveling. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and um, what you describe as a very active uh, political family that kind of had you fighting for justice as a teenager. Yeah, I feel so lucky. I had great role models as a kid. I mean, we didn't have it easy, don't get me wrong, but I had some wonderful people in my life, my mother, my two grandmothers in particular. They were just fantastic in helping me understand that we need to look beyond ourselves and the troubles we may be experiencing in life and and look out and see what are other people experiencing and is there anything we could do to make that experience better. So even as a small kid, we would be talking around the dinner table or at family gatherings about what was happening in the nation and in the world, and it really sunk in. So by the time I was, you know, 14, 15 years old, I was thinking a lot about things like women's experience in the workplace, women's experience in education, um, racial and gender equity. And I I got active. I really did, even in my teenage years and all the way through, through my 20s. I did, you know, community activism and that sort of thing. You know, mind you, I said we didn't have it easy, Sue. Um, I didn't go to college when most people do at the age of 18. I I couldn't. I took off and did other things and Mm -hmm. on the way got married and moved to Hawaii and all those things and was actually quite poor myself. So I wasn't just talking about experiences that other people were having that were hard. I was having them. Right. Yeah, I really was. And yeah. Well, tell tell me a little bit more about that. You described kind of choosing the road less traveled out of high school. What did you do right out Uh, of school? Good question. Um, I traveled around this great country of ours to start with and and a little bit in uh, Mexico and and just basically gave myself an education about how people live. Um, It's probably not how I was thinking about it at the time. You know, I was working in this place or that place and ended up settling for a while, quite a while in California and then back to the East Coast and ultimately married and moved to Hawaii where my first husband's family was from and had kids. I had three kids over a a few years. Um, It it was interesting. It was tough. We were doing community activist work in a very poor community where we lived. And I still didn't have any, any education to speak of, but I always knew that education was the key. Um, It was the key that would open the door to get us out of poverty. So in my late 20s, I started college. I was so scared. Oh, my goodness. I was so scared because here I had these three little kids, no money. Yeah. Um, But fast forward, and it, it really catapulted me into a different life. Yeah, With still some of the same values. So, well, listen, I I really want to talk about that. You're, um, you know, going to school at the age of 28 as a mother. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll get right into that. Okay. Stay with us for our leadership watch with Holly Dowling and our health watch with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. We'll be right back. Women to watch. Leadership watch. Hi, everybody, and welcome to your Leadership Watch. I'm Holly Dowling, and I'm so excited to be with you today. And as we kick off the new year, new you, new year 2019, the big question I have for you is, what is going to make you extraordinary this year? Yep, that's my word for the year. How about you? What is going to be extraordinary for you? And actually, let me start with asking you a very powerful question. 
What does extraordinary look like for you? You know, we use that word, especially as leaders, and no matter where we are with our family, with our friends, and with our teams and our organizations, we use the word, it's a powerful word, but we don't take the time to think about what extraordinary really looks like. So my question to you is, get out a pen and a piece of paper as you're listening to this show, and I would like you to take a few minutes all by yourself and just write at the top of the piece of paper, what does extraordinary look like for you? What would an extraordinary you look like in 2019, both personally and professionally? And just start writing. This is about, this year is about being the greatest version of you. And that means you are extraordinary. You always have been, but it's about you getting clear on what that looks like. My next challenge to you is, Ask your teams the same question. You want to have an extraordinary year, no matter if you have your own business or you're leading teams or you're leading your own personal mission in life, but the people around you need to see that you care and that it matters. So start asking at your next team meeting, what does extraordinary look like and what would that mean to become an extraordinary organization, to become an extraordinary team, and to become an extraordinary team member? And don't just ask, get them to write. Writing is magical, and I will tell you there's so much work around the brain and the neuroscience. Data is showing it now more than ever. When we write, it brings things magically to happen. Reach out to me at hollydowling.com. I'd love to hear from you. Do you have a financial advisor who you trust that looks at you as more than just a number? At the Foley Hillsley Group, that person is Kristen Hillsley. Kristen's team has a different approach to managing your wealth called the Panorama Process. This unique process helps you obtain your financial goals easily because it's more than just investments, it's about you. To learn more, visit their website at fhbaird.com or call 610-238-6636. The Foley Hilsey Group is affiliated with Robert W. Baird & Company, Incorporated Member SIPC. Log on to fhbaird.com to learn more. That's F-H-B-A-I-R-D.com. So if you need a financial advisor you can trust, call Kristen Hillsley at 610-238-6636. That's 610-238-6636. Now, the women to watch, Health Watch. For Health Watch, I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Happy New Year. After a wonderful holiday season, what's next? Well, according to an article from the History Channel, research shows some 45% of Americans make New Year's resolutions, but only about 8% achieve their goals. The first recorded celebrations to mark the New Year were thousands of years ago in ancient Babylon. People gathered in mid-March when they planted crops. With a 12-day festival, they hailed the king, paid their debts, and hoped the gods would favor them in the new year. Julius Caesar, the Romans established January 1 as the first day of the year, named after the two-headed god Janus, who could look back to the previous year and to the future. They offered sacrifices and pledged good behavior. Originally religious in nature, most resolutions are now secular, focusing on self-improvement. My New Year's message for you is think small, prioritize, Find an area which needs attention and set realistic goals. Let's say you want to lose weight. Don't get frustrated if you don't lose 10 pounds in the first week. Aim for one pound a week. You can do that by eliminating 500 calories a day. That's only a can of soda. 
need to exercise more, maybe you can't get to the gym five times a week, go one weekday and one weekend day. In between, walk for 30 minutes. Use steps instead of the elevator. So divas, think small. Take baby steps, and when you see progress, you'll be motivated to continue and build on your new habit, which will benefit both your physical and mental health. Happy New Year! This is Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. I'm joined this evening by Annie McKee. Uh, I should say Dr. Annie McKee, who has a PhD. She is a senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania right here in Philadelphia and an author and a speaker. Um, and Annie, I want to go back for a second. You, As you were describing your younger years, um, I, I would say you kind of nonchalantly spoke about uh, coming out of high school and then and traveling in the around the world and doing some um, work, community work, organizational community work. And I wanted to ask you where you found the courage to do that. So while you did not go right off to school, it takes some guts to kind of go out into the world as uh, as a young girl, right, and and find work. That's true. It, it really does. What did I find it, Sue? I'm not sure. I've always had an ad- adventurous spirit, and I, I think, quite frankly, the women in my family all have adventurous spirits. You know, my grandmothers did, my mother did, my daughters now do, mm-hmm. and the boys too, um, mm-hmm. all, all the boys and the young men is, and the older men as well. But we kind of prided ourselves on on really stepping out and doing things differently as women and not letting things hold us back. Right. So, yeah, I, I just decided, let me go see what I can find. And, yeah, it was scary at times, but I really felt that it was the right thing to do for me at that time. Okay. And did you – so inside, while you were doing that, did you always – know that you would pursue an education. It was just a matter of the right time. I did. Uh, Even after I left high school and um, realized I couldn't go to college at that point in time, I knew I would continue. I just knew it in my heart. I didn't Mm -hmm. know when, I didn't know how, but I knew I would. The problem is that once you sort of get off the beaten path, so to speak, it's sometimes hard to get back on. Right. And, you know, after I'd had, you know, two kids and then a third, I'm thinking, how am I going to do this? How am I going to go to college? I was working at the time. How am I how am I going to manage this? I was soon to be a single mom. I saw that on the horizon, Mm. you know, so it's sometimes hard to get back on the path. But again, I had some really wonderful people in my life who helped me get the courage to to take those steps and, and start taking classes at a community college. Right. So you did it. You did it. And what a great example you are. Um, And so for someone who's listening, um, let me say, you know, you were 28 years old. You had three children. And as you said, you you just decided it was time. You went to community college and then on to, am I pronouncing this right? Chaminade, University of Honolulu. Um, Something in my my research I thought was interesting is the school's motto is, uh, both reason and faith are essential conditions in the pursuit of truth. And in reading that, I wanted to ask you, did that that philosophy or motto have something to do with your choice in going there? And and are you a spiritual person in your in your work in pursuit of truth? That's such a good question. I was really enamored with Chaminade. I was at the community college, and really there are three options on the island of Oahu. Community college, the University of Hawaii, Chaminade. There are a couple of others, but those are the ones that I thought I might be able to 
you know, get involved in. And I didn't want to be at a big, huge university. I was still getting my feet wet. And I thought, well, Chaminade sounds wonderful. And I really looked into how they teach, the size of the classes, um, their values. And I really resonated with their values. Um, It is a Catholic college. Mm -hmm. And um, although I wasn't particularly drawn to that, uh, you know, that religion, even though I was raised Catholic, it was more about the values. And I saw that the faculty and the administration were really walking the talk. That meant something to me. And Mm -hmm. it made me really want to try to find a way to go there. And who wouldn't want to go to school in Hawaii? This is true. <laughs> right? <laughs> From Ithaca, New York. It true. sounds wonderful. Um, I, I want to talk about the work that you have done over the years with, with leaders um, uh, in many, many companies. Um, you've advised many of the world's influential leaders and in companies such as Thomson Reuters, the United Nations, Unilever, Viacom, Vodafone. Um, those are just some names that I thought people would recognize I wonder if you can share what a common struggle you've discovered that you've seen among all of these leaders, something that continues to show itself when you're working with them. Another good question, Sue. You know, I'm going to come back to the word you used at the start of the show, um, which was authenticity. I think I have seen in my experience coaching and consulting to top leaders in, in some pretty major companies that on the whole, these are really good people. And on the whole, the pressure of those jobs and the pressures that they experience often push them to say things, do things, and even be uh, someone that who they really aren't. Mm. So one struggle is to try to hold on to who you are, your values, what you care about, what you know is the right thing to do. Know your own line in the sand and don't at anybody push you over it. Mm. The best leaders that I've ever met really grapple with that every day, consciously and directly. So would you say your your tactic then is always to try to help them first? Or, or let me ask you this. This kind of leads me to a, a different question I had, and that's about professional development versus personal development. And really, can any uh, can anyone be successful professionally if they haven't dealt with their own personal demons, we'll say, or challenges or, you know, the things that keep them from being their authentic self? You've hit the nail on the head. I don't think it's possible to fully develop our potential professionally without personal development and personal growth. Now, you can get pretty far. And in, in, in truth, there are people in our organizations who get very far, but increasingly, I see that unless we understand ourselves, unless we understand our strengths, our weaknesses, our values, our belief systems, unless we're able to accurately read other people and then use that information to further a common cause, we're not going to succeed in our organizations. And that's where emotional intelligence comes in. I mean, I've done a lot of work in that area and writing about it and coaching and reading about it. Self-awareness is foundational to success Mm -hmm. in in, work. Work, working life and organizational life. Right. And so anybody who really wants to get better professionally needs to start with themselves. That's right. Listen, I want to talk um, more about that when we come back, that emotional intelligence, when it, uh, when you first came to learn about it and how it uh, may have changed your own life. We'll be right back. You're listening to Women to Watch. Stay tuned for our Finance Watch and our Technology Watch. The Women to Watch Finance Watch. 
Hi, this is Terry McDermott. And this is Maggie Carrado. We're from Fortis Wealth. Many high net worth families have their financial advisors create and implement financial plans. They also regularly review and stress test those plans to make sure they are consistent with the family's needs and wants. Even if you don't consider yourself wealthy, there are reasons why you should engage in the same practice. Stress testing is when you ask what if regarding areas of your financial plan. For example, what if I retire at age 62 instead of 65? What if my spouse dies prematurely or one of us is not able to work for an extended period? What will actually happen to my assets when I pass on? Start with determining your goals. Then evaluate specific existing or proposed financial strategies or products by first modifying the assumptions to determine how the solutions will work when a given scenario changes. Second, evaluating whether the solution will not only work but is consistent with your goals. For example, you want to both avoid debt and save for retirement. Maxing out your 401k contributions may be a good saving strategy, but does it affect your cash flow and cause you to use credit cards more frequently? Business owners often focus on reducing income taxes, but reporting less income can affect your ability to contribute to a retirement plan or secure adequate disability insurance. Third, don't forget to assess the cost of the solution. High fees and expenses can affect the long-term value of products and services. The end result may be one of several different recommendations, such as staying the course, choosing different solutions, or choosing a different advisor. Stress tests can benefit many people, especially business owners and their families, who usually rely on that one asset, their business, to provide current and future financial security. Make stress testing your plan a goal for 2019. The time and money spent can be cheaper than the financial, emotional, and psychological cost of a plan that is flawed or in conflict with your goals. Continue to stress test periodically as your goals and situation will probably change over time. This is Terry. And this is Maggie. Peace out. Since 1858, Mount St. Joseph Academy has been educating girls to be leaders, founders, and independent thinkers. Students are taught to be collaborative, courageous, compassionate, confident, and spiritual. In this student-centered environment, the young women are transformed by recognizing their own potential and are encouraged to use it to make a difference in the world. To learn more about Mount St. Joseph Academy, go to www.msjacad.org or call 215-233-3177. That's msjacad.org or 215-233-3177. Introducing Pathways Consulting Group, a company that will align your IT needs with your business goals. Pathways is a full-service ServiceNow partner. What does that mean? It's simple. Pathways will collaborate and design, develop, and deploy solutions for your company today that will define tomorrow. Pathways will provide world-class enterprise service management solutions. Pathways Consulting Group. They listen. They care. They execute. Go to PathwaysCG.com. That's PathwaysCG.com. Now, the women to watch. Tech Watch. Hi, I'm Mary Manso from Pathways Consulting Group. Women in technology, where are you? Ada Lovelace, born in 1815, developed an algorithm for a computer that didn't exist, and some would say she was the first computer programmer in theory. Hedy Lamarr, a screen actor from the 1920s, conceptualized the idea of frequency hopping. Her legacy lives on in the world of wireless technologies. Dr. Erna Hoover, born in 1926, invented a telephony switching program. Her 1971 patent for this technology was among one of the first software patents ever issued. The women were visionaries and problem solvers. They changed the direction of technology as we know it today. 
But with so many examples of strong women influencing technology, why are there such a depletion of women in this space? In the mid-80s, women made up 37% of computer science degrees. Today, women only make up 20%. Additionally, they make up less than 20% of U.S. tech jobs. In 2018, only 23 women headed the nation's 500 largest corporations. Even with my business, we're having challenges finding women candidates for tech roles. And one of our offices is located near some of the greatest universities in the country. Of all the job fairs we participated in over the course of the last few years, the resume collection from women, zero. So why does this matter? Women are excellent problem solvers, awesome at multitasking, and incredible relationship builders. Women trust their intuition and are persuasive. Women seek challenges and are equality-minded. Studies show when men and women working together successfully, the result is a more innovative workplace. Let's face it, innovation in technology is critical. Stay tuned for my segment next week that addresses the steps to help closing the gap. You can reach me at mary at pathwayscg.com. Thanks so much for joining us for another evening of Women to Watch. I'm speaking with Annie McKee, an author, speaker, and senior fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. And Annie, I'm so fascinated myself with the topic of um, emotional intelligence. And I think there's, you know, while we talk about it a lot on the show, um, it's something I came to know about later in life. And uh, I think there's a lot of men and women who still don't quite understand or know what that is. Um, my question for you was, when did you first come to learn about it, and how did that awareness affect uh, you personally? So I think most of us intuitively know that self-awareness, managing our emotions, understanding other people, and building great relationships are really important skills in life. And uh, during my 10 or 15 years um during the time I was getting my doctorate and then afterwards and doing a lot of consulting, we would talk about, well, you've got to build your interpersonal skills and you've got to build good teams and all of that. And we were circling around something that we didn't know what to call. And I really have to thank Dan Goldman, my friend and co-author Dan Goldman, for um, really coming up with the term emotional intelligence and giving us a phrase that describes what we need in order to be successful at work, followed by an awful lot of research on the part of many people, myself included, looking at what are the skills associated with emotional intelligence and how can we develop them. Mm. So it, it, what is it? It's understanding our own and others' emotions and then knowing how to manage those emotions to further a common cause. So can you tell me what is it about you personally that has allowed you to be um, so insightful and uh, ab about this topic and enable you to really motivate others to, to you know, go through that self-reflection? Oh, that's a hard question. What is it about me? Huh. I, I guess one of the things is that no matter what I was doing in my life at the time, whether it was teaching at a university or, you know, I started a consulting company or, you know, the other kinds of jobs that I had in my younger years, I, I really saw everything I did as an opportunity to learn, to be curious, to be humble, um, and to not try to shut myself off from whatever experiences I was having at, a, at the time. 
that's kind of hard to do, I think, because sometimes experiences aren't great. We've all mm-hmm. got our ups and downs. Mm-hmm. But I really believe that most of what we do can offer us just a glimpse into a better future if we can open our eyes to, to see it. Mm. Can can you share um, a life experience that you had that was that was very, very challenging and difficult and what you said to yourself to, to get you beyond that? Well, I've had a lot of tough experiences. I know everybody listening has had those kind of experiences. We've all had, you know, illnesses in our family and probably deaths and difficult times at, at work. I can think of one particular time in my life quite a long time ago when I worked in a situation where um, my boss and I really didn't get along. And he hired me. I don't understand what happened. But it was pretty clear to me six months in that this man was either seriously threatened by me or scared to death. I couldn't tell which or maybe both. But he was making my life a living nightmare. And I I even started to get sick, you know, and Mm -hmm. I was raising my kids at the time. And that sort of, you know, added to the stress as well. But I sort of picked myself up and helped myself do that by surrounding myself with a bunch of really strong, good people who could give me a reality check. Am I crazy or is he crazy? Is this situation not good or should I, you know, reframe how I'm looking at it? And we together were able to look at what was really going on in the situation and first try to fix it. Um, ultimately, I wasn't able to stay in, in that job and ultimately it was discovered that this particular person was quite toxic, not only with me, but quite a lot of people. And you know what, Sue, that experience really mobilized me to get active and get out there and work in organizations to try to help people deal with situations like that. Mm. Because toxicity in the workplace exists, and it's miserable for people. And you know, the I was reading something um just a few days ago about that kind of, you know, hostility in a workplace. And I think we all know we have the choice to leave those situations, but often people feel stuck. Um, so what would you say to someone who really, maybe they're, they're in that position right now, their workplace is uh, working with someone that is making their, their life miserable. What can they do? Yeah. You know, sometimes we feel stuck and we're not, and sometimes we kind of are stuck. I felt stuck in that job. I was a single mom raising three kids. I didn't dare leave that job, right? That's right. Um, I didn't. Uh, So I had to find other alternatives, and I was able to do that. But the first thing I would say to anyone who's experiencing a toxic boss or a toxic work experience is these people in these situations do not have the right to steal your health, your well-being, or your self-esteem. Don't let them do it. Um, And that takes courage. It takes strength. Um, They're hurting you for reasons that you may never understand. There's probably something wrong with them. But do not let them make you think the problem is you. Mm. And we do have the power to do that. You know, it's it's something we need to remind ourselves because we read – all the books out there, right, on, you know, all the self-help books. And, and there's wonderful um, people like you that, that give us sound advice. But until you really come to understand it yourself, um, you know, you kind of remain stuck. I want, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, I want to read something to you that Melinda Gates said. I read this this morning. I thought it was a wonderful take on New Year's resolutions and goals. And um, 
ask you a question about that. We'll be right back. You're listening to Women to Watch, and I'm with Annie McKee. Stay tuned for our Education Watch with Colleen Hanich of LaSalle University and our Diversity Watch with Hanadi. We'll be right back. This is the Women to Watch, Diversity Watch. Peace be upon you all. This is Hanadi with your weekly diversity segment. A couple of weeks ago, I was volunteering with my daughter's Girl Scout troop at Feed My Starving Children. I was so impressed with how organized the process is, and no joke, this organization runs on donations and volunteers. I knew that, but seeing it was an amazing experience. While we were packing the rice and sealing the bags, I was moved by the dedication of people who may have been total strangers, working together with such enthusiasm towards one goal. Sincerity comes across. It's felt and experienced. Examining our intentions from a specific activity will emanate in energy to others. Whether it's a volunteer work or a favor you're doing to someone, it's worth putting an intention behind it, like bringing joy to someone or making someone's life easier. Intentions are most important when the work we're doing is more public, has a face attached to it, or is getting media coverage. Examining why we're doing this work becomes a harder question to answer. Are we doing it primarily for the credit, or is it mainly to show off? Quote, the reward of deeds depends upon the intentions, and every person will get the reward according to what they intended. End quote. Those were Prophet Muhammad's words in encouraging people to aspire for the highest goals, even behind the smallest action. The higher and more sincere the intention, the more valuable and impactful the action. For Muslims, the highest intention is to please God and be good people of high moral values. Sincerity is today's prophetic ethic. While it's always nice to hear good feedback about our work, it shouldn't be the main objective. The credit and the fame is not part of the equation. It's an add-on. Add me to your list by subscribing to my newsletter on hanadispeaksout.com. Who is Holly Dowling? Holly is a dynamic keynote speaker and inspirational thought leader. You see what we have the ability to do and the power we have. You hold the power for good. Each and every one of us can do something. Holly has inspired millions around the world, including over 500,000 executives. And her show is listened to in 87 countries. Now we're going to spend 25 minutes on your areas of opportunity. Listen to our internationally acclaimed podcast, A Celebration of You, Holly Dowling, empowering those who can change the world. HollyDowling.com. This is the Women to Watch. Education Watch. Hi, it's Colleen Hannett, president of LaSalle University. This is your Education Watch. And today, we're going to talk about outcomes. So how do we measure outcome? Well, there are a lot of ways to measure outcomes and compare outcomes of a college education. Many universities report the percentage of their grads who are employed either full-time or volunteering full-time or pursuing additional education within a year of graduation. So when you look at different schools, compare what those rates are for each of those schools. Another measure is whether graduates are employed in their fields of study right after graduation. So being a barista is a great thing. However, when you are visiting college campuses, find out the extent to which students are actually employed in their field? It's a great question to ask. Another outcome that can be compared is looking at data around mid-career income or early career income. So this summer, for example, PayScale reported the salary of graduates from hundreds of colleges and universities across the country. LaSalle grads were in the top 11% nationally for income, which is a very strong result. And in a similar comprehensive uh, study in 2017, 
The New York Times reported on median earnings of graduates at the age of 34, and again, LaSalle scored in the top 6% nationally. This is also a measure of outcomes of a school. So it, it all goes into looking at the quality and the reputation of the programming and how their graduates are doing once they graduate. Are there any other factors that we should consider? So a couple of factors come to mind when you're looking at outcomes. The first is around professional certifications as a measure. In a field of nursing, for example, graduates have to pass the NCLEX, which is the state board exam that all nurses have to pass. LaSalle has a 97% rate of recent LaSalle graduates passing the NCLEX on their first try. That tells you something about the quality of a school in terms of outcomes. You want to look at how quickly students, or graduates rather, are moving forward and progressing in their fields. And finally, talk about money. Schools that demonstrate strong outcomes at a reduced bottom line cost are a great value that often equates to lower student debt. And let's be honest, less debt is a great outcome in itself. Great segment. Thanks, Colleen. Thank you. Now more of Women to Watch with Sue Rocco. Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Uh, Annie, just before the break, I mentioned to you reading reading something Melinda Gates had said, and I thought it was so brilliant because, you know, at the beginning of every new year, uh, there's a lot of talk around resolutions and goals. And sometimes I think that can be um, feel more like pressure. My gosh, what am I going to change this year to make me better um, rather than motivating? And she said that she doesn't make resolutions. She picks a, a new word every year, a word that um, is aspirational to her in in things that she wants to do in that new year. And I wanted to ask you what your word would be for 2019. First of all, I agree with um, Melinda and with you, Sue, that New Year's resolutions can sometimes feel like pressure and they and they can really set us up for big disappointment. Mm. A lot of us take, you know, take it really seriously and we put all these great things down and by the end of January we're off track already and we feel bad about ourselves. So number one, probably not a great idea to set yourself up for that kind of failure and if you are going to choose a goal or two, make sure it's just one or two and make sure you've got the support to get it done. That's right. Which means planning and help and friends and whatever it else is going to take to to help you get you know, make some progress on that thing. Mm-hmm. So what would my word be if I chose a word for this year? Well, I'm going to choose the one I've been thinking about because I, I didn't, I've never heard Melinda Gates say that, but I actually love it. Choose a word that's aspirational. And my word is actually happiness. I've mm-hmm. been thinking a lot about what does it take to really make us happy in life? What does it take um, what, where, where, what is it inside us that we need to do and feel and experience? What conditions outside of us? And then how can we take that happiness, however we define it, however we experience it and share it with others? Because it's contagious, you know. Mm-hmm. And for me, I would really like to focus on that for myself this year and make sure that I'm doing everything I can to bring that peace and that contentment into my own life, but also... and really, frankly, more importantly, make sure that I'm sharing it with other people. Yes. Well, and you've done that with your book. I want to mention the book, How to Be Happy at Work. Um, I would imagine some people think, you know, is that possible? Can we be happy at work? I, I certainly think we can. I am. <laughs> I love my job. Mm-hmm. Um, I, You know, I have, I'd love to ask you this. I have kind of my own philosophy ab- about happiness. And one of the things that I think um, was really a game changer for me was was recognizing that when we let go of our attachment to 
things and people and outcome, um, that really helps me to remain in a very, very happy place because I think those um, continued, um, you know, letdowns or disappointments, you know, when you when you have dreams and hopes and wishes for others or for certain things to happen and they don't, which they inevitably will not, um, that leads to disappointment. What do you, I couldn't what do you, ag- yeah, ahead. I couldn't agree with you more, Sue. I, I think it it's really important to think about happiness in terms of the experience that it actually begins within us. Happiness doesn't come from external events or things. And I, I can tell you honestly, I've met a lot of very, very wealthy people and they are not happy. That's right. And so they're, they're really not happy. That's so right. It's not about you know, the the paycheck or the bonus or the second home or that first home, although all of those things are really important and great to have. But if we define happiness in terms of what we need, we will always be disappointed because, you know, life is life and there are some up moments and there are some down moments and we've got to be able to find peace within ourselves, from within ourselves, without making it dependent on holding on to outcomes or expectations that are inevitably going to shift and change and potentially be disappointing. That's right. That's exactly right. You know, when I think about you and the work that you do, um, you have a lot on your plate. (laughs) Um, In addition to four children and a marriage, um, a couple of dogs, um, you have a very, very full life. Um, I want to mention, you know, you lead the Penn CLO, Executive Doctoral Program, uh, and MedEd Master's Program at Penn, yes. which takes a lot of preparation. A couple of questions I have for you around that. I, I'd love to know what you, how you would describe your teaching style. Um, and then, you know, the old, what does a typical day look like for you, which is not, you know, the most original question, but I would love to know how you get through um, everything that you do. What does that look like? Mm, such a good question. Uh, my teaching style, I, um, I am not a traditional professor, a traditional teacher at all. I really engage with my students as equals, as partners, and attempt to craft experiences for them that allow them to learn from their own experiences, from one another's experiences, from whatever we happen to be doing that moment in the classroom. Most of the people I teach are are, you know, in their 40s and their 50s, they're coming back to school for masters and, and doctorates, and they've got a lot to share. So I would, I would describe my teaching style as highly experiential. Um, I attempt to be as engaging as possible so that we can really learn from each other. Mm. And it is fun. It does take a lot of preparation because in addition to teaching, there's all the, you know, the curriculum design and, but boy, is it worth it. The, the folks who decide to uh, engage in an advanced degree later in life, Mm. I I can really relate to them because I did too. Yes. And you just learn so much when you're there voluntarily and you know why you're doing it and you can share so much with other people. It's really fulfilling. I love my job too. I really, truly do. And you're a great example of it's never too late, right? It's never, never ever too late. Never too late. Never too late. We have people in our doctoral program who are in their, you know, later 50s and even early 60s on occasion, you know, and they're going to go do something with it. They're not just doing it to get a little piece of paper. That's right. So it's never too late. Never. Uh, Never. Can you tell me a little bit about your, you, I read that you're a member of the Homeland Security Science and Technology Advisory Board. 
Yes, yes. Tell I about... was for a couple of years. You okay. do that for a couple of years and then you're over. It was really, really interesting. It's a citizens advisory board. And we, there were about 20, 20 or so of us, would meet the quarterly in Washington to um, provide guidance and advice to the department on technology, on um, homeland security issues. And I, obviously, I'm a social psychologist. Most of the people on the board were, you know, um, cyber experts and all sorts of, you know, different amazing, amazing uh, professions and credentials. Um, but I looked at it from the perspective of how can we ensure that the people of this nation really do understand how we use technology, what's coming down the pike in terms of the future. It was really exciting. I learned a lot. Of course, it's voluntary work when you do something like that. And that's really important to me, Sue, to be able to um, do something that is ser- is service-oriented. It's It's about giving and about sharing. And I think no matter what time and what phase we're in in our lives, even if we're really busy finding some small way to do that, that actually does make us happy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, you're doing that on such a large scale uh, with your opportunity to be in front of large audiences, um, of course, of of women, but men and women, uh, and then your students. And then, of course, I'm sure what's most important to you is is your own children and your family. And what a great example you are for your daughters. Yeah, it's it's really important. I've got two sons and two daughters, and we're all really close. And it means a lot to me that as um, as they grew up and became adults, you know, we developed new and really powerful relationships. At this point, Sue, I think I learn more from them than, them than they do. I me. bet we do. We do. I have a couple of millennials myself. Yep. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. listen, I so appreciate your taking time this week, Annie, to share with us your insights and your story. It's very, very inspirational. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sue. That's it, everyone, for another week of Women to Watch. And thank you, as always, to our sponsors and our watch team of contributors for helping me to bring you the real story behind her title here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Have a great week, everyone. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.